And as you make your way back to your seats, if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. To Luke chapter 1. Uh, while you turn there, just a couple of things I'll say at the front end. One, it is, it is so good to see you guys again, as Pastor Lance mentioned. It's been two months that I've been away. My family has been away on sabbatical, and so I am so excited to be back with you. I think last week, uh, uh, we, we did a lot of our sabbatical at Sojourn, and and last week, as we were sitting there and worshiping with them, I think at one point Aaliyah leaned over and we were like, yeah, we're ready to go back. Uh, we missed you guys and we were, uh, we were so thankful. I want to give a special thank you to Pastor, Pastor Michael, Pastor, Pastor Lance, Pastor Jesse for holding it down for two months. I think one of the most freeing things for me was knowing that I did not need to worry about what was going on here uh, because they, they had it under control. I know for some of you it was harder than others, but thank you for leaving us alone for two months. Um, I know, I know that was tough. It was tough for us. Every once in a while, I wanted to text some random people. I was like, no, don't do it. You'd been proud of me. About two weeks in, I created a focus group because I got an iPhone that was sabbatical, and I basically just blocked all of you. So none of you could get in touch with me if you wanted to. Only the pastors really had access. So if you were texting and you were like, man, why didn't he respond? It's because I, I didn't see it. So I am so excited, so thankful to be back with you this morning in this Advent series. I was joking, we're going to see if I remember how to do this uh, after, after two months, but I think, I think we'll be okay. We are in the middle of an Advent series, a series that Pastor Lance started last week, and we consider this idea of Advent. The word Advent just means waiting. Uh, it, it's in a season where we are thinking through, we are reflecting on the fact that nearly 2,000 years ago, our hope was born in a little town of Bethlehem. And we've titled this series, When Jesus Shows Up, When Jesus Shows Up. And this, this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at, I want to look at the story of Zechariah. And we're going to look at a good portion of Luke chapter 1, but as we begin, I just want to read into your hearing Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 64, and we'll jump down to verse 67 and read through 79. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Luke 1, beginning in verse 64. Luke records this. It says, Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. Now jump, jump a few verses down to verse 67. This is what Zechariah said in that moment. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies. And from the hand of those who hate us, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of our God's merciful compassion. The dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into 
the way of peace. And this morning, I want us to consider this idea that when Jesus shows up, we have something worth saying. Let's go before him. Heavenly Father, God, this morning we, we give you all praise and all glory because Jesus has shown up and we have something to say. And God, I pray that you will give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people for we are ready to hear from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. And when I was growing up, uh, I still feel like I'm growing up in some sense, but when I was younger and growing up, one of the lessons that my parents tried to instill in me, it's actually the very lesson I'm trying to teach my children, it was, if you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. And the whole point of that lesson is I'm trying to communicate to my children, and you parents know this very well, and sometimes you don't have anything worth saying, and it's better to just not speak. The reason for that is because when you choose to speak in a moment where you don't really have anything worth saying, there can be consequences. I remember as a child, those consequences uh, were often, I'd be sent to my room if I was saying something that didn't need to be said, that wasn't worth saying. Usually that meant that I was insulting one of my brothers. I'd get sent to my room on the rare occasions that I was really wiling out because I was a phenomenal child. Um, my parents aren't here today, so I can say that. Um, I might have, might have gotten a spanking. They were trying to teach us that there are consequences when you speak out of turn. As we get older, those consequences can increase dramatically. Go speak out of pocket to your boss and see how that goes. There are consequences when we speak and we have nothing worth saying. It's as the ancient Roman writer Publilius noted, he said, I often regret that I have spoken, but never that I have been silent. I think this is a valuable lesson for us. Especially in our day where there are so many avenues to publicly offer your words. You can tweet your words, you can post your words, you can text your words. You can enter into the public sphere and say whatever you want to say, but just because you have the ability to speak, it doesn't mean that you have anything worth saying. When we have nothing worth saying and decide to speak, there can be unforeseen consequences. In a very real sense, that's the story of Zechariah. Just a moment ago, we read Zechariah's song of praise. We read his words, which were worth saying. And, and we'll take a look at those words in a little bit more detail in just a few minutes. But it's worth noting that the story doesn't begin with this proclamation by Zechariah. Many of you know the story of Zechariah, but let me, let me refresh your memory a little bit. We're introduced to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth back in, in verse four of, or 5 of chapter 1. We learn that Zechariah is a priest from the tribe of Levi, so he serves in the sanctuary. But even more, we learn that Elizabeth bears the priestly line as well. Both of them come from a line of priests, and, and it says... In verse 6, something about their character that, that's worth noting. It says, both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and the requirements of the Lord. So here you have two Jewish individuals 
who Luke makes it a point of noting that not only were they Jews, but they were righteous in God's eyes. They were faithful. They were living without blame. God saw them as faithful individuals. That's the way I hope God sees me as well. But that's how God views Zechariah and Elizabeth. But I want you to notice what Luke writes next. Right? So he, he paints the picture. These are people who genuinely love God and, and they saw obedience to him as a blessing. But in the very next breath, he says, but they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive and both of them were well along in years. Now, this is an interesting juxtaposition of ideas that Luke offers, and it's positioned this way in order to teach us a very significant thing. Because on the one hand, right, follow with me, you have faithful individuals who are loving God, who are being obedient to his commands, right? These aren't just Sunday morning Christians, okay? Like, they are living their life in faithful obedience to all that God has commanded, seeking to honor him with their lives. And then, on the other hand, in the very next breath, You have the reality that they are faithful despite not having a real desire of their heart, not having children. We know it was a desire of their heart because we'll see it in just a moment that Zechariah had been praying for a child. And so this is a significant juxtaposition that Luke's writing because let's be honest for a minute, all right? I'm back, so we're going to have transparency, honesty time. I don't know if the other pastors made you do it. I didn't listen to all their sermons. Uh, (laughs) I didn't listen to all of them, at least one from each of them, though. But let's be honest, for some of us in this room, it's a whole lot easier to follow Jesus when we have the stuff we want. I mean, let's be honest. When the bank account's full, God's good. When the pantry is stuffed, God's good. When the family's acting right, God is good. But the moment something goes sideways, where is God? But this is not the case for Zachariah and Elizabeth. And their faithfulness teaches us something. Here it is. Faithfulness to God does not guarantee that you will avoid avoid the pain of this world. Faithfulness to God does not guarantee that you will avoid the pain of this world. It does not guarantee that you will have everything you want the moment you want it. It doesn't guarantee an easy road. I'm going to put it plainly. Your faithfulness does not mean that you are immune from the pain of this broken world that comes as a result of the curse. In fact, Zachariah and Elizabeth, watch this, they are feeling a very specific sting of the curse. Let me try to explain it to you. And I got to give credit. He's not here, but I got to give credit to our brother, Corey, because right as I was going on sabbatical, he presented me with this idea. And since I was on sabbatical, I had nothing else to do but dive into the Hebrew and figure out if he was right. I'll spare you all the details, but I'll give you the cliff notes. But I had to give him a shout out. If you recall in Genesis 3.16, after the fall of man, Adam and Eve sinned. Um, They rebelled against God. God curses Satan, Adam, and Eve. You tracking with me? And, And... This is what God says to to Eve in Genesis 3.16. He said to the woman, I will intensify your labor pains, and you will bear children with painful effort. Now, typically when we hear that, we immediately think of the act of giving birth, right? The act of actually delivering a baby and and the pain that is involved in that process. And it is a painful process. For some of you who might not know, I've been there. I've seen it twice. It looks rough. Now, Genesis 3.16 is talking about that pain. 
But that's not the only part of that pain that God is trying to communicate. I think the King James translation actually tries to capture it in a more faithful way to the original Hebrew language. And it says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. You see, yes, the curse does talk about the pain of actually giving birth. But I actually believe now that's not the emphasis. The emphasis is on the difficulty in actually conceiving a child. That there are women who are infertile, that, that miscarriages happen, that children die in the womb. That's the pain that sin brings. I mean, just think about it. When you track through the Old Testament, how many times can you record a story that talks about the pain of childbirth in terms of actually giving birth? No, it's not there. But what is there and emphasized over and over and over, the barren woman. Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Samson's mother, the woman Elisha encounters in 2 Kings 4. It's not just the Old Testament. Here it is emphasized that Elizabeth is a barren woman. The reality and heartbreak of barrenness, of the curse, it's riddled throughout Scripture. But think about it. How often is it out of the curse that God works wonders? Three of the four matriarchs, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel, were all barren. But it was out of the barrenness that God's promises would come to fruition. Listen, I'm out of practice, but I'm preaching better than y'all talking back to me right now, okay? I'm saying something. It's almost as if even in the Old Testament, God was trying to teach us perhaps that, yes, there is a curse, but our God is a curse breaker. Not even the curse of sin could stop God. We see it in their stories. Sarah would have Isaac. Rebecca would have Jacob and Esau. Rachel would have Joseph and Benjamin. Though the curse was present, God would work in spite of the curse and bring out of it the fulfillment of his promises. Because I don't know if you know this this morning, but sin cannot stop our God. Your sin cannot stop our God. It's almost as if the curse of sin doesn't have the last word. But God does. See, here, Zechariah and Elizabeth are feeling the full weight of the curse. Though they had been praying for some time for God to provide a child, he hasn't done it yet. And still, they are faithful to him. Once again, faithfulness to God does not promise that you will avoid the pain of the world. So where does this faithfulness come from? Well, it comes from a belief that even when life is hard, God is good. It comes from a belief that though we may not see it yet, all God's promises are fulfilled in Christ. It's a belief that though the curse stings, we serve a God who can, has, and will continue to break the curse of sin. And I say all of that to get here. When Jesus shows up, we have something to say, but it's not that God will remove every problem in this life. So this is Zechariah and Elizabeth. And as the story continues, we learn, we learn a little bit more about the situation that leads to this declaration of praise. Zechariah is on duty. It's his turn to be up as a priest. They cast lots. His name came up. He goes in. He's burning incense. This was to be done every day in the sanctuary. So while Zechariah is in the sanctuary lighting the incense, the people are outside of the sanctuary praying. And while he's in there, an angel of the Lord appears to him. 
We learn in verse 19 that the angel is actually Gabriel, the same angel that will show up a few verses later to Mary to tell her some even better news. But notice what the angel says in verse 13. He says, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you will name him John. Look at God answering prayers. Now, you would think that this would be a moment of joy, a moment of celebration, a moment of praise. You would have think Zechariah would have fell out. But look at Zechariah's response in verse 18. How can I know this? Zechariah asked the angel, for I am an old man. And my wife is well along in years. So follow me here. The angel acknowledges that God is answering Zechariah's prayer. And so again, apparently Zechariah had been praying for a child. Now we don't know if it's an old prayer that he stopped praying. Or if it's an ongoing prayer that's just kind of become a pattern of his prayer life, but he's not thinking much about it. Don't act like you don't know what I'm talking about. I've listened to some of y'all pray over dinner. You don't mean that. You're just saying it because it's what you say. Maybe he's in that boat. I'm sorry. I'm not picking on y'all. It's been two months. We don't know if it's an ongoing prayer, but it is worth noting that when he's told that God will answer his prayer, His response, as seen in verse 18 and explained in verse 20, is disbelief. He does not believe the angel's words. Man, I wish I had time to press into this. It just came to my mind. But that's a good reminder to us that faithfulness now doesn't mean faithfulness always. And we got to be on guard. Mm. Faithfulness now. Doesn't mean faithfulness then, we got to be on guard. He doesn't believe God can do it. And his rationale, follow with me, his rationale is this I'm too old, so this is impossible. Now, maybe Zachariah should have listened to the sermon last week by Pastor Lance and he wouldn't have been in this situation. <laughs> when Pastor Lance preached about Mary and Joseph, because what we saw is that when Jesus shows up, the impossible becomes possible, that the unbelievable becomes believable because God's just like that. And so Zachariah's looking at this situation with earthly eyes and he's saying, I'm too old. My body don't work like that anymore. Elizabeth's body doesn't work like that anymore. And he can't believe it. Zachariah can't see how it would be possible. But what Zachariah forgets, the same thing that you and I are tempted to forget is that the one who breathed life into this body, the one who established the order of the universe and created the laws of biology and physics, the author of life has never been constrained by the world that he made. God has never needed the natural way to accomplish his plans. When there seems like there is no natural way, something could ever happen, that's just about the right condition for God to do what only God can do. Adam saw it. When surveying the expanse of God's creation and when he realized there was no one like him, no partner for him, no other human, and there was no way to make more, if you know what I mean. God caused a sleep to fall on him and took his rib and created a woman. Oh, Adam knew it. God doesn't need the natural to accomplish his plans. Noah saw it. 
After God told Noah that he was going to destroy the world but save Noah and his family. And God said, I need you to build an ancient cruise ship. And you got to have enough room on there for two of every animal. Building the ship was hard. And, and Noah's probably thinking, but how am I going to get two of every animal? I don't even know all the animals. Can you imagine as he's standing on the deck of that ship? And watches as God brings him animals two by two by two. Noah saw it. He knew that the natural did. God didn't have to use that. I'll give you a couple more. Sarah saw it. After God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. But she looks around her kitchen and she ain't got no kids in there. She laughed at the idea. But in her 90th year of life, God provided her a child. Moses saw it as he stood with an army behind him and a sea in front of him with no possible way of escape. And God split the sea and said, go ahead and walk across on dry land. When it appears as if there is no earthly way that something could happen, this is the right condition for God to do what only God can do. And while the Bible is riddled with testimonies about God working in extraordinary ways, some of y'all in this room have a testimony of the doctor telling you to say your goodbyes, but there was no goodbye that was needed. Some of you in this room have been in places that you shouldn't have come back from, and yet you're sitting right here. Some of you have made some choices that have ruined some other people, but you're still standing because God is faithful. The question is not whether or not God can do it. The question is, do you believe he can and let me pause here for just a moment. Because again, this is a lesson not just for Zechariah. This is a lesson for us too. Let me try to apply this a little bit here. Here it is. Here's, here's the application of this part. Don't stop praying. Pray extraordinary prayers. Believing that God can accomplish anything. You see, the more I've studied scripture, I've been at it a little while. I'm not an expert. I'm trying to be. I'm still in school for it, right? But the more I've studied scripture, the more I have walked with Jesus, the more I become convinced that there are some things that God wants to do, he is willing to do, but he won't do unless you pray for it. And I think scripture supports this. For example, take 2 Chronicles 7, 13 and 14. God says, if I shut up the sky so there is no rain, if I command the grasshopper to consume the land, if I send pestilence on my people and my people who bear my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin and heal their land. Well, that's Old Testament, Pastor. Okay, I'll give you one in the New Testament. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will. That was the word. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears whatever we ask, we know that we have what we have asked of him. Our God is a God who has called us to pray who wants us to pray, who hears us when we pray, and who will respond when his people pray. Some of us can get into trouble here. I can get into trouble here. And I think we get into trouble with our prayer life for one of two reasons. First, we can get in trouble because God doesn't answer our prayer how we think he should. Listen, God promised he would hear you. God promised that he would respond. God is not a genie in the sky that will do whatever you want. But that's good news for you. 
because sometimes you want what's good and God says no because he has what's better. Listen, we serve a God that sits high and looks low and he has never withheld a good thing from his child. He is a good father. And so if God says no, we got to believe that he has something better for us. But the moment God says no, we don't like being told no. And so we think that God has bad for us. Well, if he won't give me that, that's what I really need. He must not care for me. And all the while God say, no, 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 I have something better. Keep praying. Keep seeking me. We can get jammed up with that, but we can also get jammed up. We can get jammed up like Zechariah when God doesn't answer our prayers when we think he should. That's Zechariah's problem. His prayer was good. God said yes. He just said wait. And when the time came, Zechariah said, nah, you missed it, God. You missed your window. If you were going to do this, you had to do it already. Can I tell you, remind you, we serve a God that sits out t- outside of time and space. And yet, he considers time and space. Well, how do you know that? Well, because Galatians 4 tells me that when the right time came, at the fullness of time, God sent forth Jesus I mean, you gotta, we got to get this, right? For generations, for hundreds and hundreds of years, the prophets and the people and the priests were praying, God, send the Messiah. God, send the Messiah. And he said, wait, 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 because at the right time, Christ died for you. Listen, I'll be honest. I can, get, I can struggle with this one. I really can't struggle with the wind. I've been praying some big prayers for four years. Your pastors are praying some big prayers right now. We are wanting God to do what we believe is good and right and what we think he will do. But sometimes it gets hard when it's not when I want it to be done. So y'all pray for us that we'll keep praying if God keeps saying wait. See, for Zechariah, in his mind, the timing was wrong. And so Zechariah did not believe. I don't know if he'd given up on praying. I don't know if he was still praying, but didn't actually believe that God would do it. But whatever the case, when God tells him that he will have a child, Luke wants to make it clear to us that Zechariah did not believe it was possible. So let me say this. I promise we're going to get to the text I actually read. (laughs) When Jesus shows up, we have something to say, but it's not that God can't do this. So as the story goes on, as a result of Zechariah's disbelief, something incredible happens. Look at verses 19 and 20. It says, The angel answered him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. Now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled, here it is, in the proper time. You see, Zechariah is a lesson to us. And sometimes when you say something that ain't worth saying, God will just take away your ability to speak. Now listen, I'm, I'm a pastor. He was a priest. I know it's not a one-to-one correlation, but I do know speaking is pretty significant for what we're supposed to be doing. And he can't talk. Now, remember where he is when this takes place. He's in the sanctuary burning incense. 
Like people saw him go in. He was chatted up. Hey, I'll see you in a minute. We light this incense. Let's worship the Lord. Y'all stay out here, pray, sing. I'll be back. He comes out. He can't speak. And the people know that something has happened. They said he's had a vision. But here's the beautiful part. God is faithful nonetheless. Because you know what happens? Elizabeth becomes pregnant. God never needed Zechariah to believe him to accomplish what he wanted to accomplish. Elizabeth becomes pregnant. She hides away for five months. The Bible says she secludes herself. But then in the sixth month, Gabriel makes another trip down here. And he visits Mary. Gives Mary the news that she will conceive a child born of the Holy Spirit. And his name will be Jesus. Emmanuel. God with us. And so Mary then goes to visit Elizabeth. She goes to visit Elizabeth at her and Zachariah's home. And the scripture tells us that Elizabeth knows in that moment who the child is that Mary is carrying. Even her child, John the Baptist, knows it's Jesus. Because the Bible tells us that, that John leaps in Elizabeth's womb when he encounters Jesus in Mary's womb. So track with me here. It stands to reason then, this is speculation, but I think it's a faithful speculation. It stands to reason then that Zechariah too knows that Mary is carrying the Messiah. I mean, Mary's in their house, hanging out with them. If, if Elizabeth is excited, if babies are jumping in wombs, I, I bet Zechariah believes, like his wife, that this is the Messiah. A few months later, Elizabeth gives birth, gives birth. Eight days later, as was customary, the child was to be circumcised and named. And the family wanted to name the child Zachariah after his father. But Elizabeth says, no, he is to be called John. That doesn't make a lot of sense to anybody. So they get Zachariah and they're like, uh, Elizabeth's struggling a little bit. Uh, it's been a rough eight days since she had the baby. We're going to check with Zechariah. But Zechariah can't speak. So they hand him a tablet, something to write with. And Zechariah writes, his name is John. And look again at verse 64. Immediately, his mouth was open and his tongue set free. And he began to speak, praising God. It's in this moment that Zechariah finally says what's worth saying. Now notice this. He does not first and foremost praise God because John was born. I think if you put yourself in a situation, that's probably what a lot of us would have done. We get a chance to praise. The first thing we do is praise God for the child that he gave us, answered the prayer. Even when we were faithless, he was faithful. But that's not what Zechariah does. Yet John's mentioned in it in verses 60, or 76 and 77. He is thankful, but his praise is not ultimately about John. So what does he actually say? Well, he praises God for God's faithfulness in keeping his covenant to bring Jesus. Now, let me show you this. This is beautiful. This is a beautiful section of Scripture. This is actually, this declaration of praise is actually a chiasm. That's common in Hebrew writing. And so what a chiasm does is it, 
It's a literary style, and it takes ideas and inverts them and builds towards the middle. And you'd be like, what? All right, let me try to explain this to you. So it's basically you got idea one at the beginning and idea one at the end. Then you got idea two second, and you got idea two second to the end. Tracking with me? Idea three, third from the end. And they're both building to the middle. And the focus of a chiasm is the central point. And so he's, he's writing in a way that's building. And so let me, let me walk through what he's actually saying. He says four things. First, in his declaration of praise, notice the presence of God at the beginning and at the end. We see it in verses 68 and 69. He says, blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has, watch the similarities, he has visited That could also be translated shows concern and provided redemption for his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And then the second part at the end of of his song, verses 77 through 79. To give his people knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sin. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness. In the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So Zechariah begins his declaration of praise by declaring the presence of God, that God is near. And can we just pause and reflect on what a beautiful truth that is? Because think about what Zechariah's struggle was. God shows up and says, I'm answering your prayer, and, and, and he doesn't believe him. And I wonder if there's a part of him that was like, man, God's just not hearing me. He's not near. He's not present with me. And yet here, Zechariah's declaring the presence of God. Oh, we need this reminder, especially when we are tempted to believe that God is not listening to us. Because what Zechariah is proclaiming is that God is near to us in our sorrow and God is near to us in our joy. God is near to us in our brokenness, and God is near when we feel whole. God is near in our pain, and God is near in our peace. There is never a moment where God is not near his creation. But this isn't just a nearness of proximity. This isn't just God hanging around in the background. This is a nearness of pursuit. God is after us. A father pursuing his children. And we see it when Zechariah says, because he has visited us, he's shown concern and provided redemption, a horn of salvation. He says, salvation through the forgiveness of sins. God showed up to pursue us with grace and mercy. Listen, what else is the Advent season if it is not a declaration to us of the nearness of God and his pursuit of sinners like you and me? Because God literally physically, tangibly showed up. He was born of a virgin and grew in wisdom and favor with men. He healed the sick, gave sight to the blind. Jesus is God in flesh, and we have seen the glory of God in him. He suffered as a criminal and died in our place to pay the price for our sins. But then three days later, he rose from the dead, and through his life and death and resurrection, God has provided salvation to his people. You can't tell me that God is not near his creation. Our God is a God who is present and shows concern. And so, saint, be encouraged. What might seem to you to be a big deal, but you're too embarrassed because you think nobody else will see it as a big deal. God cares. Amen. 
And he is near to you in your brokenness, but he is also near in your triumph. God is always near. So Zechariah declares the presence of God. And then as he moves along, he speaks of the testimony of God. We see it in verse 70 and then in verse 76. So in verse 70, he says, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. And then in verse 76, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And so in essence, Zechariah is proclaiming that God has proven his faithfulness. Right, that this, this whole thing, Zechariah, Jesus, the Messiah, this isn't random. This isn't God making it up as he goes, trying to respond to the chaos of this world. No, this is a God who has had a plan, and he has proclaimed that plan from the beginning. I mean, the prophets declared that this day would come. Isaiah in Isaiah 4, 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and have a son and his name will be Emmanuel. Micah declared it in Micah 5, 2, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you are small among the clans of Judah, but one will come from you to be ruler over Israel from me. His origin is from antiquity, from ancient times. Hosea declared in Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It's almost as if Zechariah wants us to know that God keeps his word. And if you have any doubt, there is a testimony after testimony of faithfulness that God has not failed to come through on any promise that he has ever made. But God not only has a testimony from back then, he has a testimony right now. He has a testimony every day of his faithfulness. Notice that the first prophets that Zechariah speaks of is the prophets of old. The second prophet that he speaks of is the prophet that's in his arms right now, John the Baptist. God's not just faithful back then. He's faithful right now because the God who was is the God who is, and he's the God who ever will be. And pay attention to this. Not only does Zechariah look back, but he looks to the present. He's speaking of his son when he says, and you, child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his way. John is not just a prophet to others. He's a prophet to his own father, a testimony that God will keep his word. He is a living, breathing example of the faithfulness of God. Listen to me. There is vibrant testimony of God's faithfulness as you look all throughout the scripture. But they're a testimony of God's faithfulness right now. The Bible tells us that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of change. Every good gift that you have in your life right now is a testimony to God's faithfulness to you. You able to eat some breakfast this morning? God is faithful. You have some gas in your car to get here? God is faithful. You've been battling some sickness, the flu, your kid's been struggling, but you're here anyway. God is faithful. And see, for some of us, if we're going to say something worth saying, we got to stop acting like the good things in our life is because we're so great. I must be honest. You didn't get that promotion just because you're a good employee. You didn't get your spouse just because you happen to be an attractive person. You didn't get the kids that you got because you, you planned it perfectly. No. 
All of this is because we have a God who gives good gifts and he is testifying to you. I am still faithful. I'm still for you. I am not against you. And so Zechariah declares the presence of God, the testimony of God. But then third, he declares the deliverance of God. We see it in verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. And then we see it, the second part of the chiasm in verses 74 and 75. Since we have been rescued from the hand of our enemies to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Zechariah declares that the faithful God who is near is the God who will provide deliverance from your enemies. And I wonder, ah, perhaps I should say I suspect that Zechariah has the promise God made to Abraham in mind in Genesis 22, verses 16 and 18 when he says this. Because after Abraham was willing to offer his son Isaac, the son of promise, God spares him. You remember the story? God sends a ram and spares Isaac from being sacrificed. And God says this in Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. By myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your offspring will possess the city gates of their enemies. And all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you have obeyed my command. And we know that ultimately the offspring that, that God is talking about, the offspring of Abraham, is Jesus. And Jesus is the true deliverer. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's first promise of deliverance in Genesis 3.15 where he says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. That's a fancy way of God saying, I'm going to kill the curse and I'm going to kill Satan and I am going to deliver you from the hand of that which holds you now. Jesus is the one who delivers us from sin. Jesus is the one who delivers us from our greatest enemy. Jesus is the one who delivers you. But what I, I want you to see before I move on, this deliverance has an expectation. Did you catch it? Look there at the end of verse 74 and verse 75. He delivers you from your enemies. Here it is, to serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness in his presence when? All our days. All of our days. I know I say it often, but it's been two months. I get to say it again. God didn't just save you from something. He saved you for something. He saved you from the curse of sin and death and hell, but he redeemed you into his family to live as if God is on the throne, as if he is for you and not against you. And though this world may rage, though the storms may come, there is nothing in this world that can separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ Jesus. What do you have to be afraid of? Serve him without fear and do it all the days. Not just on this earth, all the days. So Zechariah speaks of the presence of God, the testimony of God, the deliverance of God. But remember, it's a chiasm. Everything is moving from both ends to the central point, the point that he's trying to get to. And here it is. He's the covenant-keeping God. 
We see it there in verses 72 and 73. Look at what Zechariah declares. He says, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. Everything that Zechariah has said, anything worth saying has been building to this, that our God is a God who keeps his word. Our God is a God who remembers his covenant. Listen, when God saw the wickedness of the world and regretted that he had made it, he rem- back in Noah's day, he remembered his promise to deliver from Genesis 3 and he changed his mind. When Israel was at Mount Sinai and Moses was up there speaking with God and the people were down below crafting an idol, a golden calf, and God's anger burned against them and wanted to destroy them, God changed his mind. Why? Because he remembered the covenant that he had made with Abraham. When Israel forgot about God and what he had done for them while in the very land that he had promised them and they forgot the God who gave it to them. God raises up judges to deliver them because he remembers his covenant of old. And when the fullness of time came, Jesus was born of a virgin because God remembered his covenant. But listen to me, the fact that God remembers his covenant, it's not just good news in general. It's good news for you. It means that when we are faithless, He is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And Zechariah, I want you to see this. He picks up on the personal aspect of this even as he speaks. Let me me show you something. Zechariah says this in, in 72. He says, he has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant. Do you know what the name Zechariah means? It means Yahweh remembers. Oh, it gets better. Verse 73, he says, The oath that he swore to our father Abraham, he has given us the privilege. Do you know what Elizabeth means? The name Elizabeth means? It means my God is an oath. So Zechariah makes this statement in verses 72 and 73 of the faithfulness of God, the covenant-keeping God, and he inserts himself and his wife into the covenant. Why? Because God made the covenant for you. And we get to insert ourselves in the covenant because Jesus has come. And he has conquered sin. He has conquered death. He has conquered the grave. And all of God's promises find their yes. And so if God says, I will be your God in Jesus, he is your God now and forevermore. Because our God keeps his covenant. He is thinking of you. God was thinking of you when he promised Adam and Eve a redeemer. God was thinking of you when he made a covenant with Abraham. God was thinking of you when he promised that child would be born and a son would be given. God was thinking of you when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. God was thinking of you when Jesus walked up the Via Dolorosa on a hill called Calvary. God was thinking of you when Jesus hung on the cross and breathed his final breath. God was thinking of you when Jesus walked out of that tomb with victory in his hand and God is still thinking about you even when you aren't thinking about him. And if all that is true, oh church, if all that is true, 
If Jesus indeed showed up born of a virgin, if he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, and on the third day rose again, if he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, if we are not crazy and that actually happened, which it did, then you and I have something to say. And like Zechariah, we proclaim the God who is present. We proclaim the God who comes through. We proclaim the God who delivers. We proclaim the God who keeps his promises. And this season, this Christmas season, there's going to be a lot of stuff for you to talk about. As you gather with friends, you gather with family, you open presents, you eat cookies, you sing your songs. While all of this stuff is going on. And all that is beautiful in its own way. But don't forget, you have something worth saying. And it's that Jesus has come, fulfilling the promises of old. And he has delivered, and God is faithful. Can I tell you, church? We should say that.